Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Kathy, what was preschool like in Taiwan? I remember wearing a little uniform dress, mm-hmm. and we had a little handkerchief that you had to fold into thirds and pin to your shirt so that if anything messy happened, you would have your handkerchief right there to clean yourself up. My God. Yeah. Preschool Tobin would have loved that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. I wore a dress so many days of preschool. Like during dress up time, they would have a trunk full of clothes and I would always pull out this beautiful purple dress and put it on. And it was like during that magical time when everyone's young and gender is like, you're not thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. The rules haven't come in to be like, you need to like Power Rangers now. I love Power Rangers. I was also working out a lot of stuff in preschool. I have a full book full of sheets that they sent home with me that just say, Tobin bit this kid today. (laughs) Tobin shoved this kid today. Like a binder full of them. Are you serious? Yeah, I was a violent child. What was going on, Tobin? What was going on there? Um, I don't know. It's fun to bite people. Mm, I was never that person. I have tasted human flesh. (laughs) From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your host, Tobin Lowe and Kathy too. Tobin. Yes, Kathy. Do you know what's coming back? I have a feeling because it's you've been talking. It's orange is the new black. <laughs> okay, okay. Calm down. Is that is that too much? <laughs> I'm still bruised by last season. I mean, yeah, we're all heartbroken, but we also all need to know what happened. By the death that shall not be named. Don't do it, Tobin. (laughs) Don't spoil it for people. Why are you excited? I'm excited because we got to talk to Asia Kate Dillon, who plays Brandy on the show. And Brandy is the neo-Nazi with the tattoos and the shaved head and hangs out with all the white supremacists. Just so we're clear, you mean you're excited that we got to talk to Asia Kate, not that their character is a neo-Nazi? You know what I meant, Tobin. Asia, the actor, also plays Taylor on the show Billions. Mm -hmm. And Taylor is this, like, brilliant whiz kid in the finance world. So good at math. Hello, I'm Taylor. My pronouns are they, theirs, and them. So Taylor is gender non-binary, and it turns out Asia is as well in real life. Right. Asia uses the pronouns they, them. Yep. They're also sometimes referred to as the first prominent actor who identifies as gender non-binary. And they're amazing, and we're so excited they came in the studio to talk to us. Just so we start off with everybody on the same page, Mm -hmm. um, what is the difference between gender non-binary and gender non-conforming? Like, are they interchangeable? No. No. Um, So gender non-binary is a gender identity falling outside the boxes of man and woman. Okay. Gender non-conforming means that you present yourself— in a way that is contrary to a stereotypical uh, gender um, expression. Meaning, you were assigned female at birth, you identify as a woman, but you have uh, short hair, you know, you wear a motorcycle jacket, jeans, whatever it is, right? I am, yes. I mean, literally, we could (laughs) even just say, like, you're a person who is assigned female at birth who who identifies as a woman who wears pants. I mean, in theory, that's gender nonconforming because you're wearing an article of clothing that was designed at first primarily for men. Okay. And so someone who was assigned male at birth who identifies as a man who is wearing a dress and makeup, it doesn't make them 
anything other than what they say they are, but that is certainly a, a gender non-conforming way of expressing oneself outwardly. Okay, so one is specifically an expression. One is specifically an expression and one is an identity. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you had a thing you wanted to say. Yes. <laughs> It's a thing that uh, I have a hard time with is like as we were doing prep and research for for this interview, I kept using the wrong pronouns Mm -hmm. and then mentally slapping myself into place. Well, let me offer that I misgender myself still. Mm. So having spent so many years um, allowing other people to refer to me as she or her and referring to myself as she or her before I began to understand the difference between gender identity and assigned sex, Mm -hmm. I will still particularly if I'm in a space where I may feel unsafe, um, which I acknowledge is a privilege I hold, being someone assigned female at birth who can say, okay, it's safer actually for me to say she or her. Now, I'm moving away from that more and more, but it is something that happens subconsciously where I'll be talking about myself and I'll say she or her, and then I go, I mean, them, me. Um, (laughs) So so I would just say that, like, if I beat myself up every time I did that to myself, I mean, it just wouldn't be helpful. And so I would advise the same to anyone who misgender someone by accident, you're, you're making a mistake that is unintentional. And so I don't think there's a reason to beat yourself up. If you found yourself doing it on purpose over and over again, then I might say, like, you need to check yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and like <laughs> why you're doing that, actually. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, though, because of, you know, you have this first title around your role, you're oftentimes put in this position of expert. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, like, we both watched the Ellen interview and we're mm-hmm. like, Oh my God! They are being so patient with Alan right yeah. now. And you you prefer to be referred to as they or them? Mm-hmm. I use the singular they them their pronouns. Okay, um, because you don't. But is it is it if someone says she because you you were born a female? I was assigned female at birth. And you yes. are a female, but you don't choose to identify that way. And I wonder about that, like in your position mm-hmm. when people come to you as this expert, is that a lot of pressure and are there things you feel like you're still figuring out? Well, I certainly feel like we're all still figuring it out every day, um, whatever it may be. And um, I, you know, whether other people put me in the position of being sort of an expert or a figurehead or I put myself there, it is a position that I'm comfortable in. And I really want to give Ellen credit for allowing herself to be the person in the position who said, like, I don't know a lot about this and I need you to help me understand because Ellen is, you know, (laughs) the microcosm of her audience, right? She's able to represent um, and I mean this in a loving way, but whatever the larger ignorance is, right? We're all ignorant of what we're ignorant of till we're not anymore. And there's a difference between ignorance and willful ignorance. Mm-hmm. So I think watching Ellen admit ignorance and then learn in the moment, as you saw, is really powerful because it allows other people to go, oh, gosh, it's okay that I don't know and I can still learn. And that's cool, too. And when did you start thinking about your gender identity? I've thought about it my whole life. Um, anywhere I encountered a binary Um, whether it was, you know, girls wear pink and boys wear blue or Mm. (laughs) whatever the binaries are that we're Mm. all taught from a very young age. Um, But I didn't, I wasn't able to say, certainly when I was young, like, I'm not a boy or a girl. Uh, I did not have that um, language at that time. Um, And I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, I encountered a performer named Taylor Mack who um, uses any number of pronouns from performer to Judy to, I mean, Taylor's very creative in what Taylor uses. And I just thought, huh, that's a person who has some autonomy about their identity in a way that I never 
thought or knew that I could. Mm -hmm. And I will say, like, I mean, the amount of times that I listen to, let's say, a Buddy Holly song where it's a boy talking about a girl. And I always Mm -hmm. thought, gosh, I want... I want to be the girl, but I also want to be the boy, but I also feel like neither and both. And what's why can't there just be people being people? <laughs> That's a predominant feeling I've certainly had for a very long time. So it sounds like it was kind of a quiet process. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a declarative moment for you. Well, I will say the declarative moment that exists is the one when I read the breakdown for Taylor on Billions, and it said female, non-binary. And mm-hmm. I thought, how can the aren't those the same? Like I do, I literally don't understand. Yeah. How can you be female but then non like isn't female binary? Like I just didn't get it. Right. And then after doing the research, you know, I just realized, oh, like I can have been assigned a sex at birth, and that doesn't mean my gender identity has to conform with that. What was that moment like for you to to be researching that and understanding that is about yourself? Profound, freeing. Life changing, <laughs> um, and a moment that was, I will say, sc- scary, um, but but exciting. Um, scary because I felt like I was standing on the edge of a precipice for the first time that I had never been standing on the edge of. Mm-hmm. But I was also like, but I know that I can jump, and I won't fall. I'll actually fly for the first time. Mm. Can you, for people that haven't seen Billions, can you just describe Taylor really quickly for us? Hmm, Sure. Uh, So Taylor starts out as an intern at Axe Capital who, um, they're a financial whiz, and they're really interested in um, just seeing sort of how far they can take their skills. What about a week-to-week deal? Done. We'll prorate the million, 19,000. 19,270.77. Hourly, $214.47. Watching Taylor navigate, you know, the the morally and ethically murky world of finance as a person who has a very strong moral center Mm. and as someone who, you know, because Taylor is non-binary, because they're vegan, we might think like, oh, Taylor is like the righteous character who we expect to, you know, have a real problem with Bobby Axelrod. And what we see is actually that Taylor is (laughs) figuring out how to feel okay with um, doing the things that they're doing. Yeah, I I'm worried about <laughs> yeah. Taylor. You don't want Taylor to go to the dark side, so exactly. To speak, so to speak, exactly. Yeah. Um, so recently, there's been a lot of talk about award shows. Mm. <laughs> there always is. <laughs> it's award season, baby. Yeah. <laughs> can Can you tell us a little bit about the story of the the Emmy? Mm-hmm. I don't know what the noun to go with that is. I don't want to say kerfuffle, but. Hullabaloo. Yeah, hullabaloo. Hullabaloo. I love the word hullabaloo. <laughs> um, so basically, um, Showtime decided, uh, amazingly, that they wanted to submit me for a nomination in the, in the supporting category. Thank As you. they should. Um, Rightfully so. Oh yeah. Gosh, thank you. And, uh, and so they, so Showtime was like, oh, actor or actress. Hmm, we don't know. We don't actually know what Asia would pick. So they reached out to me and they said, you know, we, we'd like to submit you and we would like to know how you'd like to be submitted. Now, this was not the first time that I'd thought about the binary that exists in awards shows. Um, but it was certainly the first time like I felt um, that I felt like I had an opportunity to, um, I don't know, engage in the conversation in a different way because of the visibility I have now. And so I actually was like, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question because I don't have enough information. I don't know what the words actor and actress mean to the academy. I know what they mean to me, 
So I wrote this letter to the Television Academy just asking them, like, what do these words mean to you? And if these words are in reference to identity or anatomical sex, regardless of what they're in reference to, why are they in reference to anything at all? Why are we still using these words? And the Academy got back to me right away saying, you know, whatever the reason is, the rules have actually always stated that any performer can enter either category for any reason. Oh. Actually. (laughs) So I went, oh, that's really interesting. Well, then, because actor, when I'm given the choice, I use the word actor because it is a non-sex, non-gendered word. So I was like, well, that's the word I'll go with. And also choosing between actor or actress is where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. And it was based on what the Emmy board said that any performer could choose either category for any reason that I felt comfortable actually making a decision between Mm -hmm. the two. Um, But in terms of what can happen in the future or um, the way this will lead to a larger conversation about the inherent sexism and misogyny that has existed in Hollywood since it began, you know, I'm excited for, for the directions that those conversations are going I just want to point out it's hilarious that we both reacted as if that pertained to us in any way. We both ooed as <laughs> if like, like oh, we can submit yes, ourselves. We can, yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I mean, I think it does bring up an interesting point, though, which is that like, you know, we have unequal pay in Hollywood because we have actors and actresses. Mm. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't identify as an actress if they want to in their life, but that that binary <laughs> exists in a way that makes us unequal. So I know like when I came out as gay or came out as queer, mm-hmm. there's like a – once you have the language for understanding yourself, there is sort of like a recasting process of memories mm-hmm. where you sort of go back and you're like, oh, that's what was going on there. Totally. Mm-hmm. Like I get it now. Mm-hmm. Did you have that experience when you were started, starting to realize you know, this aspect of yourself? Yeah. I think um, I came out as bi – then gay, then uh, bi again, <laughs> then um, queer, then I eventually I was w- with a woman and then I fell in love with a man and I just went, God, fuck it. I don't, I'm, I'm whatever. I'm pansexual. I'm attracted. I have the ability to be attracted to anyone, anything and have been and, you know. So I think me struggling with my sexual orientation was actually me struggling with my gender identity and not understanding that because I was going, Am I a woman that likes women? Am I a man that likes women? Am I a man that likes men? Am I like finally it was like, oh, I'm just always I've just always been a person that liked people. And I think if I'd had the language or understanding about my gender identity earlier, I mean I can only <laughs> speak in hindsight, but I feel like my sexual orientation journey would have been very different because I would have innately just had an understanding that like I was a person and I didn't need to categorize myself in order to figure out what my sexual orientation was. And I've also found that a lot of people take uh, comfort in labels and there's some mm-hmm. people that don't. Yeah. And it's figuring that out for yourself. Right. Too. It's like labels are really helpful. I mean, I'm I'm a perfect example of that. The labels of female and non-binary being right next to each other led to a profound self-examination and self-discovery for Mm -hmm. me. But I also know that labels are helpful when they are self-generated. It is only when other people label us without our permission that it becomes damaging. And so I think just acknowledging that, like, it's okay for me to label myself whatever I want to label myself, but you don't get to tell me who I am. Um, I want to ask about Orange is the New Black because I'm such a huge fan. Do it, do it, do it. First, the Dominicans take the TV room. Now the blacks are controlling the movies. 
What's it like to play a neo-Nazi in this political climate? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Mm, Challenging. I mean, challenging is really the best word for it. Um, It gives me um, great insight into, particularly right after the election, um, why why people are supporting forty five? Hmm. Um, why you know the white lower class in middle America felt so left behind and disenfranchised by the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, frankly, before the election and and still do. Um, Brandy operates from a place of fear, a deep deep fear of whatever <laughs> of whatever it is, and so I think. Um, Playing a character who comes from a place of fear, like I said, has given me great insight and understanding, um, and I would even say compassion for, as I said, the difference between ignorance and willful ignorance. I think that Brandy is willfully ignorant in a lot of ways, but I also think she's just ignorant. Like she's super, Brandy is super smart and she's super well mm-hmm. read. She's just read all the wrong books. And is there anything you can um, tell <laughs> us? Just a little bit. Uh Just a nugget. So I will say that without giving away any spoilers, my character of Brandy, for anyone who wanted to see more of Brandy in season four, they're going to be happy with season five. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Well, so now that you've played a Mm neo-Nazi and sort of like a super whiz kid, (laughs) what what are you itching to play next? Oh, man. Um, I mean... I'd love to do a period film, any 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 period of time, whether it's uh, in the past or in the future. I love science fiction. Um, I've said this a couple times because I, I really believe in the power of manifestation and putting things out into the universe. Mm-hmm. I'd like to learn jujitsu. I'd like to learn parkour. And I would, Me too. Dude, right? Yes. Like, oh, I'm going to hard disagree on this. <laughs> just well, a I just hard like, pass. I just feel like parkour, like the apocalypse is coming. In one way or another. And, like, we have to be able to get out. And Mm. parkour, I just feel like, is going to be a really good way to be like, oh, the bridge is blocked by thousands of cars. I'm just going to, like, grab one other person and run over all these cars. Yeah. Yeah. Don't need the extra flips. Just need to Mm -hmm. get from point A to B as quick as possible. I'm not trying to, like, District B13 this stuff. You know what I mean? I get you. Yeah. Yeah. I had not thought of it in that context, and I'm convinced. (laughs) Parkour. You need to start parkour lessons right now. (laughs) Where do you find community for yourself? I'd say friends from school and church. My neighborhood. Very family-oriented. Lots of, um, if you don't have children, you at least have a dog. The park is a community in itself. You're listening to Nancy. We'll be back after these messages. Okay, Nancy listeners, before we jump back in, we need your help with something. We're working on a segment about first dates, and we are looking for hot tips. Hot tips. We know you've got them. What's your best advice for going on a first date? Like, what do you do to make the most out of your first meetup with, say, Mr. or Mrs. Tinder? What are you wearing? Do you Facebook stock to find their three favorite bands so you can casually bring it up on the date? That is very specific, Tobin. It is, but it's good. Anyway, record us a voice memo, send it to nancy at wnyc.org, and you may hear yourself in a future episode. This isn't for me, though. Uh, It is. 
Anyway, we love hearing from you. Send us your tips. So this next story started back when we read this article about a woman named Tina Healy. She's from Australia. She's a parent and she's trans. And we were drawn to Tina for a couple reasons. But there's something particular to her story that actually has some interesting parallels to your story, Kathy, about coming out to your mom. Yeah, because sometimes once just isn't enough. My first awakening as as trans was when I was four. Mum and Dad had friends around, and my siblings thought they'd play a practical joke. And um, Mum was a seamstress, and she had a uh, flower girl dress, I think it was, and they they dressed me in it. They thought it'd be a great practical joke, and they said, "Okay, go and run out, which I did. And then uh, everyone had a laugh, and then they they said, "Okay, that'll do. And it's like, well, no, I mean, they couldn't catch me. (laughs) I grew up in the 60s in Australia. I mean, I was brought up um, conservative Catholic. There were no words to describe the feelings that you had. I knew I felt female, but, you know, what do you do with that? It was like, and you very quickly learn that you can't talk about it. It's like if you're listening to a symphony orchestra and one of the trumpets is playing a B-flat all the way through it. It's like something feels wrong. Yeah, I guess you might say, you know, in the beautiful music of my early family life, There's just this off note that doesn't sound right all the way through. So when I met Tess when I was about 18, 19, we were talking about getting married and it was important to me that she knew that I had issues with gender. So we talked about it, but it's in that era where we just sort of thought, oh, I can beat this, you know. I'm in my idealistic 20s and like it was almost like an illness I had and I thought, I can do this, I can beat this. So we got married. But all through the marriage, this is something that doesn't go away. It just comes back and comes back and comes back and comes back. And the pressure would build. It'd build and build and build and build. And eventually you would need to dress female. And that was hard for Tess. And then I'd feel a bit sad about that afterwards. And then I'd stop. And then, you know, six months, 12 months later, I'd do it again. And same thing would happen. Just comes back and 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 comes back. I mean, Mum was an extraordinary person. I mean, she, uh, people used to say that if you gave Mum a brick, she'd wrap a blanket around it and try and nurture it. You know, she, um, <laughs> she was, she's just beautiful. Our dad died about, I think about seven years ago. And, as a family, we realised that Dad had been sort of covering for Mum's dementia. We didn't realise that it had sort of developed as it had. So Tess and I actually moved in to look after Mum for about a year and a half. And um, by moving in to look after Mum, it put me back into the family home. So all the memories and feelings of when I was a child became sharper again. And I think, too, there's a there's a sense of when you reach sort of India, you know, to your 50s, it's like, well... You start looking at the rest of your life and you think, well, okay, well, I've raised my children. I've done the right thing as much as I can by my partner and my family. And it's like, I think you get to a point where you go, well, what about me? I mean, what, you know, what about the rest of my life? What am I going to do? And I started to get very sad about the idea of living male the rest of my life. Um, I became chronically depressed and 
in the end, it's either come out or um, or I don't want to live. Um, I sat down and talked to Tess one day and just sort of said, look, things are, things are really black, they're really dark, I have to come out. And um, to her credit, she just gave me a kiss and a big hug and she said, okay, you know, she said, I'll support you. And mum was in a home at that point. So I went down as uh, uh, Chris, which is my former male name, and uh, we did it early in the morning because she's always better in the mornings. And uh, I just kept it very simple. Uh, I didn't overcomplicate it. But mum listened for a little while and she said, oh, she said, was there anything I could have done about it? And I said, no, no. I said, it's just one of those things, you know. And she said, oh, she said, so are you happy? And I said, oh, yeah. I said, mum, I'm fine, you know. And she said, well, what do you know? She said, oh, she said, I've got a beautiful new daughter. <laughs> and I started to cry and she said, oh, come here, love. And she pulled me, pulled my head to her chest and to her shoulder and, and I started crying. You know, mum was a beautiful seamstress. Uh, she used to make all the wedding dresses for half of Melbourne, I reckon. So after a little bit, she got me by the shoulders and she sort of, pulled me back and looked at me. She said, now, she said, you're going to need clothes. What do you want? And the funny thing was she'd, she'd forgotten how to sew 10 years ago. <laughs> I felt loved and accepted for the first time. At that stage, just early stage dementia, she'd remember something and I would refresh her memory and she'd go, oh, that's right. Sit here. You happy, love? I want you right next to me. Oh, good. By God, you look like my cousin Molly. Oh, she said, why didn't you tell me, love? I wouldn't have minded. You've told me this before, haven't you? And I go, yeah. She says, I love you, son. And then she stopped and she said, I said the wrong thing, didn't I? And I said, no. I said, it's okay. I know what you mean. She said, oh, that's right. She said, no. She said, you're my beautiful daughter. So it continued on like that. But I mean, dementia... It's a progressive thing, and so each time... Oh, that's right. She could only hold it for a shorter and shorter time. You're Chris, aren't you? I said the wrong thing, didn't I? You've told me this before, haven't you? And I go, yeah. It's changed. Um, I mean, I had one experience recently, about two months ago. I went to see her, and um, she couldn't really retain the concept of who I was. And um, so we just had a nice visit, and, you know, we had a lovely conversation, and... As I was walking out the door to go, she said, oh, come here. And uh, she tucked my blouse into my skirt and then she said, love you, son. (laughs) And it was a gift. But uh, just recently I could see that she couldn't hold it anymore. She couldn't remember it at all. I was crying as I came out of the home and I said, oh, that's it. I said, it's not fair anymore. It's not fair on her anymore. That's enough. It's, it's time to let go. When she first accepted me and loved me for who I was, it was like being born again. She sort of birthed me into the world twice. When I see her, I just, I just love her. I just love her. And I know she doesn't know who I am. But um, she loved me unconditionally. It's time for me to love her unconditionally too. Ah, okay. All right. 
See you later, alligator. The best part of my life, the best part of my life is my my children and my grandchildren. I just, um, I love being a grandma. It's just the best thing in the whole wide world. You know, like I was around at my other son's place the other day and she's, my granddaughter there is about two. And uh, I could hear James say from the other side of the door, Ava, guess who's here? And he opened the door and as you look up the hallway into the kitchen, a little face appeared around the corner from the kitchen and it lit up with a big smile. I said, Mama! She came running down the hallway and it was like, I thought, I'm happy. I am so happy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Tina's daughter, Jess Walton, published a children's book to help kids understand what it means to be transgender. It's called Introducing Teddy, a gentle story about gender and friendship. And it's fantastic. That's our show. Nancy is on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Nancy Podcast, both places. Follow us to find out about our live videos every Wednesday afternoon. All right, credits. Our producer. Matt Collette. Sound designer. Jeremy Bloom. Editor. Jenny Lawton. Executive producer. Paula Schumann. We had production help this week from Samara Breaker. I'm Tobin Lowe. I'm Kathy Too. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. How you doing, Tobin? I'm I'm tired. <laughs>